Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. Welcome to Noble Blood, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion advised. The weather is getting warmer, so it is time to say goodbye to your jackets and heavy sweaters. Hello to shorts and tees. If you are anything like me, you have this urge around this time of year to completely overhaul your wardrobe. But ideally, you want to do that without spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. They have these amazing European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14-karat gold jewelry, and honestly, my new favorite pair of summer sunglasses I got from Quince. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash noble for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot com slash noble to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash noble. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%.
Identity theft protection starts here. Hi, this is Dana Schwartz, and this is the 75th episode of Noble Blood. To celebrate this monumental anniversary, I am so excited to be joined by the incredible historian Dan Jones, the author of, I think, a dozen books. His latest, Power and Thrones, A New History of the Middle Ages, is basically just the most readable interesting book about the entire thousand-year period of the Middle Ages. Like, if you have ever had any, like, questions or misunderstandings about what actually constitutes the Middle Ages and what's important about it and what isn't, Dan's book is just phenomenal. And his first novel, Essex Dogs, which is about a platoon of soldiers during the Hundred Years' War, comes out later this year. You should absolutely look it up. I've read a chapter. It's just phenomenal. I'm basically starstruck that he's here. Dan, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, I'm starstruck as well. So conversation's going to be stilted. For listeners who maybe recognize your voice, you are also on a number of Netflix programs. Do you want to enumerate which ones those are? Well, there's a series called Secrets of Great British Castles. We made two series of it, seasons of it, I guess you'd call it, back in like 2015-16. And they were great. Each episode, I'd go to a castle and tell some stories and wander around and like look like quite sort of earnest at times and at other times jocular and like wave my hands in a TV presenter style. And do you know what? It was like super fun to make. And they've lived on Netflix for some years now in, I believe, like 40 territories. So in really improbable places, I'm like the castle guy. We're going to be going into depth talking about the Middle Ages and Night of the Crusade. But tell us a bit about your background. How did you become a historian? Well... I had a really good history teacher in school, and that sounds kind of banal, I guess, but it tends to be make or break. I think history is a subject where charismatic teachers can get someone interested in history for life, and the opposite is also true. For no reason other than that I liked my history teacher and did okay in history at school, I went to study history at Cambridge and then specialised in the Middle Ages there. And I would love to say that I'd had this like burning desire to be a medievalist, but really, the day I had to fill in my form detailing, this is... June 1999. That's how old I am. I bet you weren't born then. Just barely. Just barely. Okay. So while you were saying sort of goo goo gaga, I was filling in a form that said what I wanted to study when I went to Cambridge, because Cambridge give you enormous freedom to study what you want within the history, history tribos, which is great. And I didn't take it very seriously, which is sort of the story of my life in a way. And I asked my teacher, hey, what should I study? And he went, I don't know, medieval. I went, yeah, that'll do. So I ticked the box. And then some months later, October 99, I went to university and I was presented with (laughs) like a bunch of medieval history to study. But I studied under Helen Castor, who's one of the greatest. She's the OG, really. And so she taught me pretty much everything I know about the Middle Ages. And she was such a, again, you know, the story is of phenomenal teachers. I was taught by her. I was taught to write by David Starkey, Tudor historian. And those two people were highly influential, Helen on getting me hooked on the Middle Ages and David on just teaching me how to write the joy of narrative writing and of argumentative essay writing and a public performance. So that, that was kind of my background. And then I did a lot of journalism. I wrote a newspaper column after university for 10 years. And I suppose that journalistic style fed somewhat into the narrative history writing style I've developed. And once I started writing books, I started getting TV work as well. And here I am. You're looking at it. We're listening to it. Here he is. 
When you're starting a new book, now that you're 11 or 12 in, as you said, what's your process like when you have an idea? And then what's your research process like? How long does it take you? I guess I've got like a pool of ideas at any one time that I know one of them is going to develop. And I'm usually relatively certain about what I'm going to be doing for like the next two or three books. Well, that's the way it is now anyway. The very first, the sort of primordial pool of idea forming is just like thoughts kind of ambiently buzzing around my head as I go about my day-to-day business, usually while I'm working on something else. And then the time will come when I've actually got to start writing a book. I tend to write a book a year, not a big book every year, but I tend to sort of have a big book one year and then a different project the next year and I alternate like that. So I'm extremely architectural as a writer. So the first phase of any book work that I do involves no sitting at my laptop typing at all, not really very much reading, just a lot of thinking around the subject and trying to build a framework of how I would envisage a book. So Powers and Thrones, which is my most recent nonfiction book, well, the subject matter was a, a history of the Middle Ages. And so and all I really had by way of a brief from my publisher was we start with the sack of Rome 410 and go to the sack of Rome 1527. And then it's like, fill your boots. So, okay, well, I've got two bookends, but then I start thinking, well, how do we create this? What are, thematically, then, I approached that idea. I thought, what's, good, what's important in a history of the Middle Ages that will talk to a 21st century audience? Because, of course, these history is the business of communicating across the years. So I came up with some, a list of five themes I thought were germane both to the subject matter and to the audience. And then I started like breaking it down. I have weird and it's fairly arbitrary numerical obsessions. So I, with Powers and Thrones, I was absolutely certain it had to be 16 chapters, four parts of four. I, I mean, there's no real reason why. I just decided at some point when I was doing Crusade. Perfect square. Yeah, I mean, it probably makes you. You could okay. You could rationalize it. You could post-rationalize it, but I can't tell you that that's how it feels at the time. When I was doing Crusaders, I was like, "This book <laughs> is twenty-seven chapters, <laughs> three lots of nine. I don't know why. Just felt the story felt like you get a feel for it after a while. You just feel you know what the shape of a story is. You can chuck all of that out the window when it comes to fiction. I've just written, as you kindly pointed out, a novel, and that. Uh, that was a, a completely different matter. You're much more adept at that, so I should ask you the questions, really. No, absolutely not. I feel like I'm already learning. I have no idea how many chapters my next book is going to be. I'm so behind. Are you going to be writing fiction or nonfiction? Both. I have both in the can right now. Gosh. I have no idea how many chapters either is. This is maybe why I'm struggling. Well, do you know what? A few years ago, I had dinner with George R.R. R. Martin, right, who created Game of Thrones. And George and I, well, I interviewed him in front of a big audience and then we had dinner afterwards. And George said something that really stuck in my mind. He said, there's two types of writer. He said, you've got architects and gardeners. And he said, the architect plans the, everything very meticulously and then starts to build. And I thought, that's the type of writer I am. And it's true, in nonfiction, that is the type of writer I am. And he said, the gardener just plants a seed and lets it grow. Now, he spoke much more <laughs> favorably about the gardener. So that's the type of writer he is. And I thought I could never be that writer. Okay, so when I sat down to write Essex Dogs, which is the novel that's out later this year, I was like, well, here comes an architect writing a, <laughs> writing a novel. <laughs> I've got to plan the hell out of this. And I sat and I planned and I tried to like have it all in its shapes and forms before I started. And I sat there and for the first time in my life, I looked at a blank page and I thought, I don't know what to do with this. And I realized that the thing to do, and this is everyone's process is completely different. So... This may resonate with you. It may resonate with your listeners. It may not. You may think, what a load of nonsense. 
But my process now is to do some yoga and then to just sort of lie about <laughs> with my feet on, on that sofa, that, like in the back of my office, to just sort of lie there. I once saw a, uh, there was like this Jay-Z trailer for one of his albums once. It was for Magna Carta, Holy Grail. And there's a bit of Jay-Z in the studio Magna talking Carta? to Magna Carta? Magna Carta, Holy Grail. Okay, yeah, there's, yeah. Look, there's always going to be a medieval thing. And he's t- he talks a little bit in that video to Rick Rubin, the legendary rock and sometime hip-hop producer. And Rick Rubin, in that video, is the comfiest looking man I've ever seen. He's just lying, stroking his big long beard on a sofa while all the other producers are kind of uptight and sitting there. Rick Rubin's just like lying back like this. And so I I call it the Rick Rubin pose I've got to get into before I'm in any position to write fiction. And once I'm in the Rick Rubin pose and you're like almost half asleep, like in communion with your dream state, then and only then am I ready to write. It looks completely different. I like to do a lot of brainstorming in bed, horizontal, before I go to sleep. Do you? Where I'll like turn off the light and it'll be like 10 o'clock and my fiance will think I'm like going to bed. He'll be like, okay, well, you're asleep. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not asleep. I'm working. It's all part of the process. Sometimes you just need to let the ideas come. You've got to be in that state. And it's about, you know, this is going to sound super woo-woo. But I, th- I really think there's a different mental frequency, maybe even a different part of your brain at play writing fiction and nonfiction. Which is weird because the trick I've always tried to pull in nonfiction is to make it feel like fiction. But that said, a lot of what I've drawn on in writing nonfiction does not come from novels. It comes from screenwriting. It's all screenwriting technique that sits under my history books. So that, that's very structural. I'm interested in George R. R. Martin particularly because he seems very inspired by history. Do you know for a fact if he's read War of the Roses? I don't think he has. So I did a thing for the season five DVD of Thrones, which was like the real history. It's like, it's a pretty good documentary, actually. There's me and Kelly DeVries and a couple other historians and George. And the HBO people, when I went to New York to shoot that, were like, oh, George is just your greatest fan. Dan is Santa Fe. He's got your books on his desk. And I really believed that at the time. And then in retrospect, I think they were just flattering me. Well, look, he was writing about Game of Thrones when I wasn't far off Goo Goo Gaga, baby. So I was a long way from having written Wars of the Roses at that point. Well, back to the Middle Ages. I admit it's a period, I mean, it's such an intimidating period. It's one that I never really felt like I've gotten a handle on. To listeners who maybe don't know, what actually constitutes the Middle Ages? And why is it called the Dark Ages, I would argue, and I think you would argue incorrectly? Maybe the best place to go to answer that is the 16th century, which is the the end of the Middle Ages. And that's sort of where we first start hearing the term, the Middle Age, if not the Middle Ages. So in 1563, I think, maybe four, John Fox, the great Protestant writer, writes his Book of Martyrs, Acts and Monuments, it's it's more proper title. It's called Fox's Book of Martyrs. And it's it's an ecclesiastical history, basically, leaning into the the subject of martyrdom, and particularly of of the the Protestant martyrs. Fox, in the course of Acts and Monuments, tries to, like, salami slice up history. And he says, it's it's not salami slicing because it's really big chunks. He says there's three ages in history. He says there's the primitive age, by which he means if really pagan Rome and everything preceding, and in Christian ecclesiastical terms, that's sort of poor old persecuted Christians be hiding from Romans and catacombs. 
And Fox says, and there's our present age, you know, just as we think of ourselves now as being differentiated by being alive or, you know, we are quote unquote modern. So Fox thought about his own time in the 1560s. And he said that, well, between these two bits, that's the terribly enlightened post-Reformation 16th century and the pagan classical world, there's like the Middle Age. He says the Middle Age. (laughs) And it's like, it's just this sort of lump in the middle. Now, of course, if we define that, as I have slightly more tightly, as being Saccharone 410 to Saccharone 1527, we're still talking about 1,100-some years. That's a big chunk of recorded human history. Um, well, why is it known as the Dark Ages? Usually, it's the early Middle Ages that are, defines the Dark Ages, so everything up to about from 500 through 900, with some very, very slight justification in that the you know, written record tends to be much, 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 much patchier in Western Europe. Certainly at that time, there is a sense, if you read the history, again, of Western Europe, that there's a retreat in the Christian world from the scientific learning of the ancient world and that seems you know anti-progressive to many people and there's just a sort of sense that it's already difficult and far away and no one wants to have very much to do with it it's gross i mean why would you (laughs) how would you like get dirty in the middle ages which can be pretty intimidating and weird when (laughs) far prettier bits of history to look at you know the sort of glories of republican rome or the great scientific advances brackets, minus dreadful imperialism of the 19th century. You know, these things are probably more attractive to most sane people. They were terribly unattractive to me as subjects to study when I was growing up. I don't really know why. Less mud. Less mud. Well, let's flip it around and say what's attractive about the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages is inherently, and although this is, I'm just saying this because we look at it through the prism of the Victorian age, which created this reputation, it is sort of inherently romantic. I mean, I realise all the problems with, with that statement. I'm not stupid. But be that as it may, we do happen to live after the 19th century, and we are still stuck with many of the preconceptions of the 19th century in our general worldview. The Middle Ages does seem romantic, or it seems romantic to a child who wants to study things. It's got knights, and it's got princesses, and it's got castles, and it's got daring do, and everyone goes about on a horse. Tell me, that's not a world that it seems on the surface of things attractive to you. Perfect segue, because I would love to talk to you about the the historical basis of Arthurian legend. I feel like I was one of those children who grew up in, you know, Chicago, reading Arthurian legend and thinking like, oh, this is, this is magical. This is purely fictitious. These are fairy tales. And of course, you get older and you discover that there's been, you know, historical figures who have been proposed as the real King Arthur probably didn't look like we imagine in storybooks. Yeah, I think there are certain figures from the Middle Ages. Arthur is one of them. Robin Hood is another. They're kind of perfect bridges for getting people into the Middle Ages because there's a, there's a, a huge volume of fiction about them, which has in itself a, a nearly a thousand-year history, in the case of Arthur at any rate. And there is the tantalising prospect that some of this might actually be true. Now, I have read So You Don't Have To the many, many books which go looking for a real historical basis for King Arthur, for Merlin, for Lancelot, for Percival, for whatever, whatever, for Camelot. And, you know, it doesn't take very long immersed in that early medieval literature, earnest as it is, to say, well, it's very clear what's going on here. (laughs) There is nobody in history who meaningfully resembles the Arthur we know from fiction. 
So really, what are we looking for? Well, are we looking for a person whose example was the original basis for the very first Arthurian stories? And I've concluded, I think, over the years that even that is really a sort of misapprehension of the problem. These stories were not created, you know, by and large in the 12th century from, you know, Chrétien de Troyes onwards. It's like saying, well, no, wait, who was the real Iron Man? <laughs> who who was this real Spider-Man you speak of? Like, well, but you know you haven't really understood the, <laughs> what's going on here. The primary purpose of storytelling was not to elaborate on the real deeds of a known historical figure. It was just to kind of tell a story. It gets a kind of ass backwards to go looking for the real Arthur. However, like I say, the, the initial prospect that there might be a real real King Arthur, was this a real person, is sexy enough to get people into the Middle Ages. The same for Robin Hood. The same for Robin Hood. I suppose the question is, when did the, the fictional accounts begin? Ah, no, that's a, that's a much more interesting and better question. Because the, so the fiction, the, the real kind of, the cradle of Arthuriana, if you like, is the 12th, early 12th century. Cretin de Troyes, Percival, Wolf, uh, Wolfram van Eschenbach, Percival. This flourishing Geoffrey of Monmouth to an extent in you know, the history of the kings of Britain. I have to already interrupt and say I'm already furious at how well you pronounce those French names because as any listener to this podcast knows, it's absolutely impossible to me. And here you come in just effortlessly dropping all of those <laughs> French names, teaching listeners that it is possible. Well, I've been, I have been in Morocco and France for the last two weeks. I mean, my French is pretty horrible. Like if if you'd see me in France struggling my <laughs> I had to negotiate buying an umbrella in a shop in Amboise the other day. And it was a very torturous conversation I went through trying to buy this umbrella and a pair of nail clippers, may I add. Uh, and there was a problem with the card machine. And I got to like, I got so far with this conversation, like hacking my way in French. And then just like, I, I was just hit my limit. And I was like, oh, excuse me, my memory was anglais. And she went, oh, yeah, I'm American. <laughs> and I was like dumbfounded. And I thought, was my French really so good that I tricked you? <laughs> no, you were just being weirdly polite for an American. And anyway, put all that aside. Uh, let's get back to the early 12th century. Yes. This is the cradle of Arthurian. One, what's the context for all of these stories suddenly like flourishing and becoming, you know, I've used the analogy already, but like the Marvel movies of their day. You know, this end, this this sort of open world where stories can be retold and characters can pitch up in each other's stories and all that. Sort of. It's it's the high point of sort of knightly chivalry in a way. You know, the concept of the knight, that is the heavy cavalry, the warrior on mounted on horseback, armed with sword and lance, that had sort of come into European military and political society from the early tenth century. By the mid-11th century, if we think, you know, we're talking about sort of 1066, Norman invasion of England, the even then, knights are still, it's still a work in progress. If you can, if you can think of the Bayo Tapestry, uh, the horse, the, the mounted warriors there still have spears in their hands rather than couched lances, which is the sort of, you know, the essence of knightly combat. So it takes a long time for, firstly, what is the essence of a knight on horseback as a, as a military entity. That, take, that takes a while to develop technologically and strategically. What takes a even longer to develop is this kind of caste mentality and common social code among those warriors, which we call knighthood, a set of principles and beliefs and codes of conduct and worldviews, and if even if we want to be pretentious, and memes. 
that takes a little bit longer to develop. But by the early 12th century, you know, the aftermath of the First Crusade, uh, really even the sort of, you know, the Second Crusade is coming around the way, knights are in business. And knighthood has really become bound into noble culture and aristocratic culture in Western Europe. And part of the consequence of a caste mentality or part of what are reliable historical features of a caste mentality or a group, you know, group culture of that sort is that you start to have origin stories, you start to have fables of knighthood and these imaginary deeds of knights from a past that's just over the horizon. You know, we can't quite grasp who these people really were, but we know they lived in a great time when the land was populated by giants and scary beasts and they did heroic deeds and we, the knights of today, should try and emulate them. So that's what's going on in the early 12th century. Knighthood's on a roll and along with it come these these wonderful stories. Well, and, and once that's established, once knighthood has its own literature, really interesting things start to happen. So people grow up listening to, yeah, primarily listening to these, you know, these stories of Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table and of chivalry. A good example would be William Marshall, who you've probably talked about before. We can talk about in some more detail if you want. Men like this grow up hearing these stories, then start to try to absorb these ideas within the Arthurian legends into their own behaviour. And almost the tropes of fiction start to inform the realities of warfare. And then William Marshall's case, the deeds of these real people are then written up. Uh, so you have this sort of pop will eat itself thing going on where knighthood just becomes such a self-referential phenomenon that's that's full of stories being told of generation to generation and people growing up feeling they are both existing in the real world and existing in this kind of alternate fantasy reality that, that goes along with the profession. Who is William Marshall? What is the Cliff Notes version of that story? So William Marshall, by his own estimation, or certainly the estimation of his sons and friends who commissioned his biography, The History of William Marshall, in the early 13th century, 1219, a massively long old French verse account of the Marshall's life, idealised somewhat. But Marshall was a man of the late 12th and early 13th century, who was one of the younger sons of a knight called John Marshall, who was fighting in the 1130s in the anarchy between Stephen and Matilda, the English Civil War for the, for the throne between uh, rival descendants of King Henry I, both grandchildren William the Conqueror. And Marshall was sort of five years old during that war, and his first encounter with warfare, according to the history of William Marshall, was uh, his father was holding a castle against King Stephen, one of the belligerents in the anarchy in that civil war. And King Stephen had hold of young William because he was being held as a sort of hostage for honourable behaviour. And Stephen's men put young William in the bucket of a trebuchet, you know, one of those giant siege catapults, and said, Oi, John, we're going <laughs> to... We're going to hurl your kid at this castle wall and his prospects of not being, you know, catch up after we finished are slight. Um, I paraphrase. And John Marshall said, do what you please. I've got loads of kids, mate. This is a classic story we see from tale telling. But what does young William Marshall do? Well, he's so naive and kind of charming. He charms King Stephen and makes him laugh, which is generally a key skill in life which I know you possess. So he charms King Stephen to such an extent that Stephen goes, oh, no, we can't we can't reduce this poor child to ketchup. Let's, uh, let, let him hang around with me for a bit. And that's the start of young William Marshall's career in royal service. And he goes on to be raised as a knight at the family of one of the, Marshall, uh, the friends of one of the Marshall family in France. 
he then enters the service of the Plantagenets, the early Plantagenets. So at various times in his career, he rides in tournaments with Henry the Young King. That's the eldest son and putative successor of Henry II, the first Plantagenet King. He serves Henry the Young King. He serves Henry II. He serves Eleanor of Aquitaine. He serves Richard the Lionheart. He serves King John and eventually serves John's son, Henry III. Uh, he is the man who's sort of responsible for saving the Plantagenet crown so that Henry III can wear it when King John's at war with both the French and his own barons. So Marshall's career is a really, really good way to look at the first two to three generations of the Plantagenets. And the history of William Marshall is one of our most entertaining and important sources for that time. You know, we're, we're talking here temporarily between the 1150s and the 1210s. Marshall's biography is brilliant because he's such a charismatic and entertaining character. You know, his central moral precept is loyalty. And loyalty is what his entire story over these tens of thousands of old French verse is supposed to, uh, supposed to make us meditate upon. He gets in all sorts of entertaining scrapes. Uh, he's, you know, he is a very, very talented knight, you know, and, and typical of knights in many ways. As, as a young man, as I said, he rides on the tournament circuit and this, you know, being on a tournament team and being a well-known tournamenter was a very good way to make money, connections and prestige in a world in which those values were highly regarded by polities in general. So Marshall's very talented tournament rider. He's just, he's got the ability to, to get on with people and he's, yeah, he has a great military skill set at a time when the business of politics is largely war. He goes on crusade, on third crusade, although that weirdly is not really mentioned. Actually, he doesn't go on the third crusade, I'm sorry. He goes to the Holy Land around the time of the third crusade, but probably not on the third crusade. But that's that's a weird little sort of gap in his history. And anyway, you know, so look, we, we get to see all the Plantagenets through Marshall's eyes. And then his, his biography, as I've already said, is written up. In a, it's not Arthuriana, but it's a sort of new version of Arthuriana. It's like saying, hey, here's another epic sort of romantic poem about the deeds of a knight. Only guess what? This one is is absolutely true. I mean, it's a fantastic read. You know, when you mentioned the, the jousting sort of circuit of that time, in your book, you sort of trace the history of jousting up until the festival joustings of like, you know, King Henry VIII, which I think modern people most often associate like that's what jousting is. It's sort of like just for fun. It's sort of celebratory. What were those early jousting circuits like, you know, a few hundred years before that? So when we say jousting, that's immediately going to bring to mind your listeners, I'm sure, Heath Ledger in A Knight's Tale, right? It's <laughs> like, you know, we will rock you and they're in the lists and they sort of, they ride at each other and then they bash the lances into the shields and someone falls off or doesn't. Okay. 15th, 16th century, absolutely. That's tournaments. It's fighting in front of an audience. It's a bit like MMA or boxing today. It's just organised violence in quite a contained environment with some sense of a uh, an ethical code and some rules. Unless you're Henry II of France. Right, yes. Well, all bets are off at, at that point. I mean, all bets are off in France in general. Go way back to where we're talking about William and Marshall in the sorry, in the twelfth century. Tournaments look absolutely nothing like that, and and quite in many times, at, at many times and in many places, they're actually illegal because they're, they're just so dangerous. The tournament at that point is is conducted over a very large open space, which could stretch dozens of miles in in either direction. Uh, maybe even scores of miles in either direction. Teams turn up and 
the name of the game is over the course of several days to ride one another down, not kill one another. Um, you're not that's that was very bad form, but to fight at about sort of eighty percent capacity and capture one another. And once once you've captured somebody, then they would have to buy back from you their liberty, their horses, and their armor, which were the three things which were the most important to a knight. And they could be quite violent, quite rough. They obviously attracted large crowds of hangers-on, ranging from well-to-do supporters, well-wishers and spectators, through to, you know, the hangers-on that would have always accompanied any festivities or festivals, sort of dealers and spivs and drunkards and thieves and the usual crowd, the people you find me hanging out with. If I guess what's the sport itself like? I guess you've got to be quite rich to take part in it. So it's a little bit like Formula One motor racing, but with the, the casual violence of mixed martial arts, yes, of rugby or, or American football. You know, you need horsemanship, so it's a bit like polo. I suppose the, the horsemanship plus wealth makes it a little bit like the polo circuit, but with the, yeah, with the violence and danger of Formula One and rugby. It must have been great fun, I think. Enormous fun. And if you got involved in this, you know, if you could get a start, if you get on a team and you were any good you could really make quite a lot of money because you could capture people, your own money, ransoming their gear back, or you could lose your shirt as well. This happens to William Marshall. You know, he's early on in his tournament career. He gets a bit cocky and then he's captured and he loses pretty much everything. And at that point, you're relying on your team sponsor or captain, you know, let's say it's Eleanor of Aquitaine or Henry the Young King, to bail you out or you're in bother. And Marshall at various times ends up a prisoner for quite a while. There's a great story in his biography where he's a prisoner and he's been injured in one of these tournaments. So you think he's had a, I think he's had a lance through his leg and he's got a very painful wound in his leg and there's sort of bandages stuffed in it and it's dressed. But he's got to be really careful because it's a serious wound. And he's being sort of taken around, oh, cerebral boring, by whoever's captured him. I can't remember now. And <laughs> one night, the people who've captured him having this competition of who can throw this giant stone the furthest <laughs> it's it's very good it's good boy stuff there wasn't hbo they had to entertain themselves somehow exactly you know forget netflix and chill it's chuck a massive stone and chill <laughs> or, or not and so they're chucking a massive stone about and marshall he can't like he's he just can't sit there and watch he's like come on guys give me a go like well i don't think you want to go i don't think you want to play at this Give me a go. Pass me the stone. Really? Pass me the stone. <laughs> so he gets the stone. But of course, because he has to win, <laughs> he just lashes it. He throws it so hard that all the stitches and the bandages oh, no. burst out of his leg and he's worse off afterwards than he ever was before. But that's a, that's told as a, a relatively comical story in the history of William Marshall, which is like his desire, his knightly prowess <laughs> occasionally got the better of him. <laughs> Pride. Pride comes before a burst leg, as they say. Yeah, that's what they say. One other thing I'm I'm interested in speaking to you about, obviously because you're the expert on English and British castles, the idea of the medieval castle, when does that really come about? I think we're picturing like, you know, like a cartoon castle of like the stone turrets and archers through the slits. <laughs> yeah, I, know, I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. You know, like think about <laughs> yeah. a, a, the cartoon castle, which surely even if King Arthur was, you know, quote unquote real, that wouldn't have existed in the fifth century. But when do we get the classic stone castle? Well, yeah, the story of the castle is a story of, of several important phases of evolution. So beginning uh, really 
uh, around the turn of the first millennium, 10th century, I suppose, you start to see, particularly with the Normans, a lot of the drivers of a lot of medieval history that is still familiar to us today often tend to be the Normans, this group of sort of Viking-descended, Frankified roughnecks from Normandy, which is the little bit to the uh, west of Paris, centred on Rouen in modern France. So the Normans are great castle builders, and during the 10th, 11th century, you start to see a, a typical Norman castle, which would be a, what we call a Mott and Bailey castle. So you're going to have a keep, which is a sort of stronghold, usually built on a sort of artificial or natural hill, and then round it a, an enclosure with either wooden palisades or, you know, even stone walls in some instances, and within that's the Bailey. So that's, that's the sort of basic form of a castle. And it serves pretty well, for example, during the Norman invasion. After the Norman invasion of England, 1066, William the Conqueror comes over and builds castles absolutely everywhere and of, of this sort. You know, you throw them up pretty quick. What are they for? Well, they, they're really garrisons. This is where Norman knights are stationed and they have a sort of a, a radial circle of a day's ride. That castle can then control the land around it because you can send knights out from it to, to wherever you choose. But the heyday of the castle of the sort that you're talking about is somewhat later. So in British terms, probably the greatest castle builder is Edward I, Edward Longshanks, the hammer of the Scots. So Edward is king at the turn of the 12th into the 13th century. He is you know, a crusader. He's son of the not enormously successful Henry III and therefore a grandson of the bad King John. Very, very talented military general, commander, and carries out in the British Isles a sort of an Arthurian-inspired attempt to conquer Wales and Scotland and add them formally and permanently to the Kingdom of England. Prior to Edward I's reign, the main focus of sort of territorial expansion or retrenchment or defence from England had been France had been to the east, so holding on to uh, Gascony, but also trying to get back the bits that had been lost by King John, Anjou, Maine, Terrain, Normandy, whatever, whatever. All that's sort of finished by Edward I's reign. England still has Gascony, which is in the southwest, around, centred around the city of Bordeaux. But really, the job of conquering any more of France by that stage is, is just too expensive and too difficult. So Edward starts to, I mean, somewhat inspired by the legends of Arthur, who'd be a king of the Britons and not the English, starts to, to look to conquer into Wales and Scotland. And in Wales, it launches this enormous series of campaigns, uh, particularly to northern Wales, Snowdonia, which is the very mountainous bit of, of north-west Wales. Typically the heartlands of the native Welsh kings, extremely inhospitable terrain, very difficult to conquer, but Edward decides to go and conquer it. So, 1270s, 1280s, 1290s, Edward sends in enormous armies with uh, with enormous corps of engineers to cut these sort of super highways into northern Wales, conquer the lands, get rid of the native princes and kings, and builds these vast, vast stone castles at unbelievable expense into the mountainsides of North Wales. One of the most famous, and one we featured on Secrets of Great British Castles, is Carnarvon, which is right up in the, the northwest tip of Wales, not just across the, the Menai Strait from Anglesey, which is a big, the big island in the top of northwest Wales. And Carnarvon Castle is still an incredible incredible place to visit lots of these places were never quite finished but they were all 
or almost all, the sort of architectural brainchild or an engineering brainchild of a castle builder called Master James of St. George, who was just, I mean, the, the greatest castle builder of his day. And they look nothing like a, a Norman castle. They are these sort of often two sets of concentric walls. In the case of Carnarvon, these walls are built in alternating horizontal bands of stone, which is supposed to resemble the walls of Constantinople. You've got palatial apartments. You've got these very, very large inner, well, they're not courtyards, I suppose they're, we could call them baileys, where hundreds of people could congregate. They often have small towns erected around them, you know, new towns built to host a population to supply the needs of the garrison in the castle. They're the fairy tale castles, and they're built all over North Wales during the time of Edward I. And the expense is truly, truly, truly phenomenal. They don't actually serve for a very long time as effective military outposts. Because the, the the conquest of Wales is sort of, you know, is, is almost completed under Edward I. I mean, there are further conflicts in the 15th century. You know, Henry IV has to, to find Wales. But, but really, the job is sort of done. And the castles, I think, quite quickly pass from having a primarily a military function to primarily an intimidatory function. They're sitting there as a sort of a deliberately painful reminder of the might of the English crown, and they are symbols of conquest. These days, they would be torn down and thrown in the sea because they would be triggering and they would be very offensive. In fact, that, that, that might well happen. Some, I'm sure somebody will come along in Wales soon and say, these are terrible symbols of colonialism and we need to chuck them all in the sea. But in terms of intimidation, the Tower of London, I mean, maybe the most famous castle in England, would have obviously served the same purpose when William the Conqueror comes in, builds this massive castle in the middle of London. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the White Tower, the original bit of the Tower of London, very much was designed to overawe Londoners. But again, well, maybe it's a slightly different story with the Tower of London because it's soon, there's not much need for a generation after William the Conqueror. There's really not much need to have a castle in London to overawe the Londoners. I mean, the, the relationship between London and the Crown is only occasionally one of a sort of military antagonism in the rest of the English Middle Ages. The Tower of London is a great example of a castle that, that quickly passes to have a sort of more palatial administrative role. Edward I, you have a royal mint. They're making coins in the Tower of London. It becomes a prison. It becomes a menagerie. You know, this is where under Henry III, I think you have a polar bear that swims in the Thames every day that's kept in the Tower of London. It has a little leash and it goes out and catches its fish in the Thames. And there are at various times elephants and lions. So it's only under the First Duke of Wellington, 19th century, that, that London Zoo moves out of the Tower of London. So it form, it's, a very, it's, a, it's a very odd castle, the Tower London. It's, it's a wonderful one, and, and rightly the, the most famous. But if you think about it in 15th, 16th century history, what's it most famous as being used for? It's a prison. It's where the princes in the tower go. It's where, I know you've done an episode on that, it's where Anne Boleyn is executed. That becomes its, its more important function. Yeah, I think people probably associate it with the Tudors more than William the Conqueror now. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, but all of the like all of these castles, there are there are certain points in history where castles are very important for different reasons. If we look at the 11th century, the Norman Conquest, 1060s, through a couple of generations, yes, castles are there for colonising and subduing 
the English and their projection of Norman power from the other side of the English Channel into England itself. And then you have this period in the which we're just talking about in the 13th century or under Edward I, there's this kind of revival of castle building, mainly on the places that the English are trying to conquer within Britain. And then in the Tudor era, we, we start to see castles perform a different function again. You know, they are, they're, they're palaces, they're administrative, they're prisons. And then the sort of final great throw of castle use in England is in the Civil War in the 17th century, after which that's why many of the castles in England are in ruins, because they were slighted by Cromwell's side in the Civil War, so they couldn't be used as royal fortifications thereafter. And that's why so many castles in England are these rather glamorous ruins, in the same way that so many, or what we can see of so many monasteries in England are these haunting Gothic ruins, because they were you know, left that way deliberately after the Reformation under Henry VIII. So there are very few castles which don't just become sort of private stately homes or just ruins after the 17th century. I mean, there's one very interesting exception, which is Dover Castle on the south coast. And that still had a military function in the Second World War. Um, it was where, if you've seen the film Dunkirk with Mark Rylance very nobly sort of chugging, chug, 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 chugging across the, the channel in his little ship, that, that the command centre for Dunkirk was Dover Castle. In fact, if you visit Dover Castle when you're in England, you can go down and it has a military or a quasi-military function after that because there are nuclear bunkers underneath, cliffs underneath Dover Castle, which were intended and may, <laughs> God forbid, still be intended for use as a regional command centre for the southeast of England in the event of World War Three, fought with nuclear weapons. It's pretty weird down there. But that that's a very unusual, it's kind of one of my favourite castles in a way because it's so unusual, that it retains a serious purpose for a thousand years almost. I remember when I was, you know, much younger, the first time I went to Edinburgh, I went to Edinburgh Castle, I was so astonished because up until that point, my understanding of castles was like Disney, Neuschwanstein castles, you know, the, the fairy yeah. tale castles that are sort of the the castle equivalent of the Arthurian legends. And the Edinburgh Castle, which is very much like a small town and feels like a military garrison. Yeah, Edinburgh, oh God, Edinburgh. I mean, Edinburgh Castle is one of the most wonderful places in the whole of the whole of the UK. I don't need to mansplain Edinburgh to you, who's written a novel set at Edinburgh, and a very brilliant one, by the way. That, that too is quite unusual, in that part of its function as a royal palace is still to have a, this ceremonial military thing, and with the tattoo, and with the bang of the gun. And, and that's part of its charm, I suppose. But part of its charm is also, like so many of the best castles, it's the glamour of its location, you know, on that craggy volcanic precipice, I suppose, overlooking one of the most beautiful cities in Northern Europe. It's almost unbelievably charming, isn't it? Wonderful place. Well, I feel like I've kept you for a long time, but before I let you go, the Middle Age, you know, the Middle Ages, which spans a thousand years, is sort of an intimidating chunk, I think, for amateurs to look at. Is there a specific period that you think is your favorite? Well, I mean, like with my children, I have a different favorite, depending on which day you ask me. <laughs> but I'm back into the 14th century at the moment, which was kind of where I began. My first book was about the Peasants' Revolt of 1381. And the Peasants' Revolt of 1381 is a sort of almost like a culminating event. It's, a po it's what we now call a populist rebellion or rising 
that comes at near the end of a century where there's been famine, followed by animal moraine, followed by the Black Death, pandemic, pestilence, followed by war, the Hundred Years' War, and then you get to that populist rebellion. And so the 14th century is where I started, and it's where I've gone back to. So the, the novel Essex Dogs you mentioned is set in 1346. It's towards the beginning of the Hundred Years' War. And for, you know, for one reason or another, I've just been, I've been on a 14th century tip you know, it's not that cheerful a time. <laughs> you know, you don't go to the 14th century for a good time, much. Like, but but it it is incredibly dramatic, and you you see in the 14th century really what feels like apocalypse coming. But you also see the beginnings of you know literature in in the vernacular traditions that we recognise today. You know, Chaucer or Boccaccio. These sort of father-like figures of the vernacular literature that became adopted by nation-states. It's all there in the 14th century and the very, very early stirrings of the Renaissance, the early stirrings of religious protests that will coalesce in the Reformation. It's it's the beginning of the end of the Middle Ages and it's a time where for, for a lot of, well, a lot of people, it was the end of, of days, but it, it's the closest century, maybe barring the early 20th century, that we've ever had to genuine apocalypse. That's interesting. Well, with that, I think that's a, an optimistic place to leave us. Dan, thank you so much for taking the time out. Everyone, you should absolutely read one, two, to three of all of Dan's 11 or 12 books. Before the interview, I asked him how many books he had written, and he wasn't sure. Uh, There's always another one, isn't there? I've lost count. Thank you, Dana. It was so much fun talking to you. And everyone pre-order his novel, Essex Dogs, if you're interested in that romantic world of the 14th century. He's a brilliant writer. And remember, this is the 75th episode. And starting now, Noble Blood is going weekly. So look for an episode every single Tuesday on your podcast app. Dan, thank you so much. Thanks, Dana. And congratulations, 75. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over 6 million active hourly workers. Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store, clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah. Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200 k for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billings, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before 
during and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Noble Blood is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Menke. Noble Blood is hosted by me, Dana Schwartz. Additional writing and researching done by Hannah Johnston, Hannah Zwick, Mira Hayward, Courtney Sender, and Lori Goodman. The show is produced by Rima Elkiali, with supervising producer Josh Thane and executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, Visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission parking and all-day drinks for one low price but you better hurry because this bundle won't last long save now at cedarpoint.com open a limited time 11-month certificate at kemba financial credit union at 5.25 percent apy it's more than triple the national average plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details offer expires may 31st 2024 apy equals annual percentage yield restrictions apply 500 dollars minimum and two hundred fifty thousand dollars maximum deposit advantage status required comparison based on bank rate average federally insured by ncua get emotional with me Radhi Devlukia in my new podcast A Really Good Cry we're going to be talking with some of my best friends I didn't know we were going to go there on this people that I admire when we say listen to your body really tune in to what's going on authors of books that have changed my life now you're talking about sympathy which is different than empathy right never forget it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.